Anyone here deeply offended by that advert? There we go. All you Apple people, we're praying for you. And uh, there's a better way, you know. You, just, you don't know because you think that's all that is, but it's kind of like when there was a radio and you're like, this is it. And then they came up with television. And uh, there's better ways of living life, you know. And it's interesting because some people get really fired up about this stuff and other people just don't care. That's cool. They're like, I don't care about this one. Uh, but then there's other things that other people will care about here. So anyone, um, you know, you get, you get cat people and dog people. Anyone cares about that? So some people are like nodding, yes. Where are all the cat people? Yeah, that's amazing. You put up your hand because normally they're so shy. They're just like... <laughs> and the dog people are like, me, me, me. Um, rugby versus soccer. Anyone care? Soccer. Soccer, football. <laughs> Never. <laughs> you don't look like a soccer player. Unless you're a goalie, you just block that whole thing, hey? Um, anyone care? Maybe a little bit more serious. Anyone care about climate change? A few people. Okay, climate change is important. Anyone care about Donald Trump and Donald Trump's wall? Anyone care about, uh, I mean, you might not know this, but the Gillette toxic masculinity advert. Anyone see that trending? It's like people are going, ooh, already now, like, ooh, it's, where are you going with this? Feeling unsafe. Anyone care about Bosasa? A little, a little bit. Anyone care about the elections? 8th of May? You, you should all care about... <laughs> The elections on the 8th of May. But it's interesting because there's so many issues uh, where essentially we're being exposed to and we can get hooked and triggered. We're living in the information age. You know, they're saying that people now are exposed to, in one day, are exposed to more information than some people are exposed to in almost a lifetime. And uh, I suppose part of it is with technology and social media and all of this stuff. And social media in particular is exposing us to increasing amounts of what I'm going to call discourse. You know, that really balanced, respectful conversation and debate that happens on the social media platforms. That's a joke. Um, it can be pretty, pretty intense. And here's the thing. It's not people, people aren't just inviting us to care. They, they're demanding that we care. They're saying, if you don't care about my thing, then there's something wrong with you. So sign my petition or like my page or share it even better, and then you're on my team, and so we're getting into this whole thing of identity politics and all this kind of stuff, and there's more and more information that's coming at us, and people are asking that we care. On the other hand, there's stuff that's closer to home, and the people we work with. You know, some people are like, ah, I don't care about any of that stuff. I'm so mature. Um, What about the people you work with? Your next performance review? What your boss thinks about you? Who gets the promotion? Office politics. You know when you see those two people in the kitchen making coffee together, you're like, ooh, something, something's not so good. And if you're the boss, you want to go make coffee all of a sudden to, to try and diffuse what could be going on there. Um, or maybe in the extended families. You know, this can be a little bit trickier because like, you have to organize a bra, but then there's that one family member that you don't want to. And is this just my family? Um, you don't want to invite, but then not inviting them is worse is it, oh, my parents are sitting here now, so it's awkward. I used to be able to make these jokes. It's not either of you. Don't worry about it. Um, I used to be able to make these jokes with impunity, but now I'm going to think about what I'm saying. Um, or friends. Because friendships are really, really crucial. But then people change. People drift out of our life, and we don't connect with them, or they move countries and then try and convince you to move too. Why? When are you moving to... New Zealand or wherever it is. And even in our immediate family, you know, kids can go haywire or stuff with siblings can become really tense. And in this space, you can 
really be consumed by worry and anxiety. And we're going to deal in this series with the sacred art of not caring, or re- more better phrased, is how do we care at the appropriate levels about the right stuff? And um, there's a, been a whole bunch of stuff actually written recently to try and help people cope with this. This is actually based on a book, which we've changed the, the title. If you know the book, you'll understand why. But as you can see, it's um, the counterintuitive approach of living a godly life. And here's the thing, is that you can't just say, I just don't care, because we're actually made to care. Um, psychologists are fairly unanimous about this, or are unanimous about this, that, the, that we're wired for human connection. From the moment we come into this world, we're wired to connect with other people, and there's this question that, questions that we keep asking. I mean, a baby coming out the womb is going, wow, where's my people? I need to belong. I need to be safe. I need to be connected somewhere. And there's this underlying premise that every single one of us has legitimate needs, which is, am I wanted? Do I belong somewhere? Am I needed? Am I valued? Am I accepted? Am I, do, do people respect me? Am I significant? And these are legitimate needs. I actually believe God-given needs. And they are different in different stages of life. So when you're first born, your whole world really is your nuclear family, your parents, and then eventually your siblings. And, and that broadens out as you grow. That becomes more and more uh, important as you interact with extended family members. And then you go to school and you get friends. And you know, it's like, who's friends with who? And who's sitting with who? And where? In which circle? At lunch? And all these things. And then you get to that stage of being a teenager when you've got your closest 50 friends. And then you become a young adult. And who you're interacting with is crucial because you're really hoping to meet that special someone. And uh, uh, this is amazing because in this f- phase of life, so often in the teenage and young uh, adult years, it's the introverts that can struggle because the social currency is how many people are you connected to? And so the extroverts are having the time of their life and the introverts are like, ah, oh, me and my closest three friends. <laughs> but intro- if that's you and you're the, that introvert, don't worry, one day... You'll get married and you'll have kids and your world will shrink. And then the extroverts will be dying because their whole social circle is like seven people who are on the same schedule of wake, feed, sleep as you. (laughs) And the introverts will be like, ah, the world is a peaceful place again. (laughs) Or maybe you're retired recently and the question in that age bracket is, is, do I still add value? Am I still wanted somewhere? Am I still needed somewhere? And these questions, am I wanted? Do I belong? Am I needed? Am I valued? Am I I accepted? They're answered in different ways at different stages. And God's made us this way. If you meet someone who's like, ah, I don't care what anyone thinks about me. I'm like, really? Even your kids? Even your mum? Because if that's you, if you really don't care what anyone thinks of you, chances are you're not the healthiest individual. So there's a strange thing. On the one hand, the world's asking us to care so much, and we can care too much, and we've got to learn how to care less about things. And on the other hand, we're made to care about certain things in certain ways. So this isn't so simple. And that's why we're doing this series called The Sacred Art of Not Caring. How to care less about certain things so that we can care the right amount or we can really care about the right stuff. And today's term is called Care Less About Performing, especially for the crowd. And if you want biblical language, we're going to be speaking about do not fear man, but fear God. 
Ooh, dun, dun, dun. Sounds dramatic, eh? It is. Um, Proverbs 29, 25 says this. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. I've actually got a snare here today which got a little bit wrangled. I'm going to actually raise it because I realize most people can't see this. There's a man here who used to find these for a living because he ran it, worked on a game farm. Is this a, a good snare? Is this appropriate? It's a good one. There we go. Thank you. He's also a Gary, so you can give him a hand. But yeah, it's uh, Ross's dad, and, uh, and he, he worked on a game farm, and so he would go around and collect these. So what happens is people would hide these uh, somewhere in the bush uh, where animals walk, and this is tethered to something. So maybe Tim, because Tim's their movable object. Um, <laughs> It's tethered to something over here, and then the animal comes, and it, it normally gets its head stuck in there, but I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to use my, my... Actually, Terrence, can you come up here? I'm, I'm joking. Um, and the animal's he- head comes through, and he gets stuck, and he gets pulled. And this slides and slides and slides, and then... Okay, easy, Timo. Um, and then, eventually, you, you're snared. And the amazing thing about a snare is that the more you struggle, the tighter it gets. And the Bible says that the fear of man is a snare. So you're walking through life, and you develop this unhealthy preoccupation with what other people think about you. And the Bible says is that you've come, and I'm free again. No, Timo, please. Thanks, sorry. And you you come through, and 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 you're stuck. And then you keep telling yourself, I shouldn't care. And so you try and do that thing where I don't care what people think. But you do. And the more you struggle, the more it gets stuck around your neck and it squeezes the life out of you. Thank you, Tim. In fact, the the, the fear of man is such a deadly snare that Jesus said, hey, if you want to fear something, fear God. Look at this, Matthew 10, 28 said, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You, You think, the stakes are high in this conversation. I mean, Jesus is saying a, a polarizing statement. He's, he's going, man, you've got a choice to make in this thing. You can't be ambivalent on this one. And so the Bible's so clear that we need to fear God and not fear man or not fear people. The Bible also says this, though, in Proverbs 22, verse 1. Choose a good reputation over great riches. Being held in high esteem is better than silver or gold. How ironic. So on the one hand, the Bible says, don't fear what people think about you, but choose a good reputation over great riches. Being held in high esteem, in other words, the way people think about you, is better than silver or gold. It's interesting. The Bible says value reputation, but don't fear man. And care too much what they think about you. And then there's a, another thing where the Bible says in another place, 1 John 4, 18, it says, perfect love casts out all fear. So the Bible says we shouldn't fear man, but we should love man. But the interesting thing is when it comes to God, we should fear God and love God. And generally speaking in scriptures, we look at the way we relate to the Godhead to show how, and the God relates to us to show how we should relate to people. But in this issue, it doesn't work because the Bible says that the fear and the love of God are two sides of the same coin, but that the fear and love of man aren't two sides of the same coin. They're not even on the same planet. They're opposites. And so in digging into the subject... 
It's a little bit tricky to get your head around. I'm going to try and answer some of these questions before the end of this. You see, so much of this paradox is answered when you go to the original language, the Hebrew, where it talks about the fear of man and the fear of God, because the word for fear of man is charad. Everyone say that together. Charad. Nice. It's bad. Charad is bad to fear man. But the fear of God is the yore of God. Say, yore. So the Bible uses two different words when it talks about fearing man and fearing God. When it comes to man, don't charad man, but when it comes to God, yore God. But both are translated fear. So the English is different from the Hebrew. And this is sometimes where stuff gets lost in translation. So I'm going to try and open up those words. The fear of God, the, I mean of man, the charad of man means to shudder or have terror, to have fear. To make afraid, it's to be careful. Ever been around someone and it feels like you're walking on eggshells? You're just careful. You're like, hey, landman. I'm going to get this one wrong. If you, not, I'm not doing ballet. I'm looking for a landman. So don't have the calves for it. Um, because you're worried. And so you're, you're walking on eggshells. You're careful around them. Or another word, discomfort. You're literally in the presence of someone and you feel uneasy inside. You know what I'm talking about? And the reason what it says is that there's a sense of to shy away. To withdraw, in other words, the charad of man, the fear of man causes you to shrink back because you're scared of some kind of external consequence. I remember, I'm going to tell you a story about the difference between me and my brother to illustrate the fear of man. So uh, when I was in grade five, so I was like 10 years old, um, a friend of mine, I borrowed my soccer ball, didn't bring it back to school for a number of weeks. This annoyed me greatly. And so I jokingly one day before school started, pretended to push him out of the classroom. Well, I did push him out of the classroom, but I weighed about 12 kilos. So, you know, the law of physics say it wasn't really me pushing. You know, it's, but anyway, at that moment, the headmaster was walking. He saw this kid come flying out the classroom, not flying, jumping. But, and, and then he, he said, who threw you? And he said, Gary. I was like, you rat. <laughs> Don't rat on your mates, first law. Anyway, um, and there's this headmaster who was known to shout, and he just shouted, God, oh, my office. So I was 10 years old. I was in his office. He drew the curtains. <laughs> he took out the cane, because they could beat us in those days. He flexed it, laid it on the desk. Very dramatic. And I was there going, trembling. What are you going to do to me? Discomfort. Uh, my younger brother, or maybe he's just—he is—he's definitely more bullish than I am, and he's, and he's got—he uh, really backs himself. He's got that natural uh, sense of self-belief. Uh, he remembers overlooking a, a youngster getting shouted at by the same headmaster and saying, "I'll never let him intimidate me." And then in standard grade seven, he was in assembly and he was talking with his friend. They got told, "Go to my office," and he went to the office and he drew the curtains, but he couldn't take out the cane because they. A bandit. And then he was shouting at them, why are you talking about Sammy? And my brother was just standing there like this. <laughs> and he said to him, does your dad, do you smile at your dad when he's shouting at you? And he said, my dad doesn't shout at me, sir. And he said, shall I phone him and ask him? He said, yes, can I use your phone? <laughs> he said he, he refused to shrink back. And I say, not just because he's braver than me, but he was older and he couldn't get beaten. 
But he had this confidence. And you see, we live in a world where we don't, you know, once you get through the, these stages, you're not scared of getting beaten, but we've got these questions in our heart that are rooted to the sense of who we are. Am I wanted? Do I belong? Am I needed? Am I valued? Can I add significance? Do people want me around here? And it's other people who can either answer or not answer those questions. And so we don't fear a caning, but we fear other people's disapproval, what they think about us. Will they gossip about us? What are they saying? Because I know what they say about other people. When they're not here, what are they saying about me? They can hurt us. And these have very real-world consequences. You might not get that job based on your level of interaction. Or you might not get that promotion. You might not get invited to that bra and those getaways. And they've got all these great pictures on Facebook of their beach holidays with friends. And there were you at home. They could break up with you. There's reason to fear. But the Bible says, don't fear people. Don't charad people, but yore God. See, the word yore in Hebrew means to revere something good, but also frightening. It's a sense of the archaic word awful, not like that guy wore, you know, brown belt and black shoes, that's awful. No, not that kind of awful how we use it. But the sense in which we're so full of awe that we find it deeply beautiful but also a little bit terrifying and that's what we need to look at God. I think the best way to explain it, it was a video. It's this, I'm going to show you a clip of a volcano and the Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. He's awe-inspiring. He's awesome. But it fills us with a sense of his bigness and our not being God. And so if you want a visual picture of the yore of God, watch the screen. Our God is a consuming fire. Live with a sense of reverential awe at the bigness of who God is. This is the way I think of the fear of God, of the yore of God. It's like he's so deeply beautiful and so deeply good that I, I can't help but stare at him. But when I do, I want to divert my gaze because of his bigness and his love and his fierceness. And as soon as I look away, there's something in me that wants me to draw me back to him. And I live in this tension of I'm in the presence of an awe-inspiring, glorious God. And how about this is that God says, you're a God. Fear God, but don't chabad God. Don't fear consequence of him because those consequences were dealt with at the cross, which makes him all the more awesome. So the Bible says, fear, charad, the fear of man is a snare. The charad of man is a snare. It will link its, its noose around you and squeeze the life out of you. 
But the yorei, the fear, the yorei, the reverential awe of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. It's what we can build our life on. Wisdom is how we apply knowledge to live life. You see, the fear, the, the first, the fear of man is an outside in. I'm scared of the consequences they can inflict on us. But the yorei, the fear of God, the yorei of God is an in, inward out sense of reverential awe because we're drawn into the presence of this magnificent God. The first, the fear of man, will result you you putting your trust in something that is ever-changing and ever-shifting, and people should treat you differently based on how well they slept and what they ate for breakfast that morning, and you think it's about your worth or what else is going on in their life, and you get your sense of value on how they interact with you, but the yore of God bases your life on a God that's unchanging and is fiercely good. The one results in you living a life of compromise because you think you've got to be who they want you to be. So you can fit in there, but the array of God fills our life with boldness because if that God has made me in His image and drawn me into a relationship with Him, He fills my life with boldness and courage. And so we're going to, for the rest of the sermon, we're running a little bit late. You can tell the kids' church people, ask them for an extra 10 minutes. But we're going to talk about how practically this works in our life, because let's get practical at the moment. Okay, so over here, we've got a hypnotic device. I'm joking, it's not. Um, We've got six circles of influence, and here's you and me at the middle. We're here. We're not the center of our own world, but we're responsible for us, and then we make decisions based on who is around us, okay? So uh, in this level over here, and this is, I did this based on my life, the people that are closer to me and then moving out. So right here, I put family. This is my uh, Teresa and my son Judah. They're the people closest to me, and then my extended family, and then right after that, you've got friends, Okay, these are the people that are around you. These are like, I think, and the older you get, the more you realize the value of deep friendships, those few group of people that you know will be there for you. And then you've got over here colleagues, people you work with. And we spend a lot of time with people we work with, sometimes more time with people we work with than at home, with our own families. And then over here you get community. And that's like, there's a lot of people that I meet, but there's those people in my life who I don't necessarily, you know, we're not close friends, like I don't see them all the time, but they, we serve together and we minister together and we're part of the same group and they serve in this church and I get to know them and, and this interaction is a broader network of your acquaintance. You call them friends, but not like, you know, I'm going to be there for you at 2 a.m. in the morning, friends, just we get to do life together. And then over here is the crowd, those people out there. And I'm going to show you what happens when we get this order wrong. Because remember, we've got these questions. Am I wanted? Am I needed? Am I valued? Do I fit somewhere? And you know what happens is when we go to these places to get these questions answered rather than God, our life goes haywire and we get stuck in a snare. So let me start at the crowd level. You know, in Jesus' day, you had to be a machine, like in other words, really, really good at what you do. 
in order for people to follow you to get a crowd. Jesus had like thousands and thousands of people following him. He was like the greatest rabbi of his generation. These days, you just need to have Facebook. Not really. You've got interaction with thousands of people, potentially, through one medium. And so everyone thinks they've got something to say. And so, and we do, you know, you can, people can follow you or not follow you. But the interesting thing is that the way Facebook works and social media works, if we just pick that one thing, is that every time you post something and someone likes it, you get a little dopamine hit. You get feel-good hormones flooding into your brain. You're like, oh, that feels good. And then you've got to do it some more, and you've got to do it some more, and you've got to do it some more. And you know what happens is that eventually the dopamine hit doesn't work anymore. And you get unhappier because you have to keep pushing the envelope on this thing. Because I got 100 posts last week, 100 likes last week on that post, and this week I only got 80. What does that mean about me? <laughs> and so we get insecure, and so you get people competing for attention in this space. And you know what's amazing? Eventually, you're with your family and your friends, the closest people, and you're not thinking of connecting with them. You're thinking of, how do I get that great picture so I can put it over here and speak to the crowd so even your time with your most intimate people becomes about speaking to this group. And here's the thing is they won't be there for you when you go through a tough time. You might go going through a tough time and they could like or put a sad face. (laughs) But it's not the same as these people over here, right? And Jesus said this. He, he knew that crowds were fickle. He ministered to them, but he didn't base his life on them. And then over here, the community, these are the people closest to you. You know, we had a fascinating, I'm looking at someone now, I'm going to break eye contact. Um, we had a fascinating staff devotion recently because we were all sharing about stories of our past and where we were 10 years ago or whatever. And um, some of the people that I would never have expected said 10 years ago, I was the really, really loud, drunk one at all the nightclubs. I was like, you? Never. But they said what they realized is when they were that person, they got all these people liking them. They became a center of attention. They became a center of a party. They got invited to go places. And you know, that might not be your thing, but you've got people who, who buy cars they can't afford and clothes they can't afford and live a certain lifestyle they can't afford so they again can put it over the head to the crowd because I need to impress these people. This is, they're trying to answer that question. Do I belong somewhere? Do people want me around? Or maybe it's your colleagues. And if you get this wrong and you're going, am I significant? Do I add value? And you're trying to get that answer from your colleagues. Then you'll say Yes. When you can't possibly say yes, because you already have too much to do. But you need other people to think you're the person that always gets stuff done. And then you say yes to your colleagues, but you're saying no to your family, because at night you're not available to them because you're working. And we all have seasons of that at work. But if that's the mainstay of your life, and you're trying to answer a deeper question, do, am I needed around here? And then what happens is you do that for long and then someone else gets the promotion and you're gutted. Or maybe it's your friends. And these are the people that that you need them to like you. And so, again, you, you do things that you wouldn't normally do. Maybe you laugh at jokes you wouldn't normally laugh at because you're scared of going, hey, it doesn't sit right with me. You see, the fear of man won't confront someone, but the love of your friend will confront them. The fear of man will shrink back. What happens if they get upset that I confront them? But when you love someone, you love them more than the consequences. 
Or maybe it's your own family. Maybe it's your own spouse. Because of the deepest part of your heart, you're trying to answer this question, am I needed? Am I loved? Am I worth something? And you're looking at your spouse to answer that question for you. And then you do all these things for them. And then they have an off week because they're going through their stuff. And then suddenly it's, no one appreciates me around here. Do you not see how hard I work? Because you've put your hope and your sense of value in your spouse, and your spouse cannot consistently answer that question for you, and all of a sudden, your home feels like you're walking on eggshells in your own house. Can I get an amen? Because <laughs> there's landmines. Because you're looking to another person to answer the question of your heart that only God can. And here's what happens with God. You see, God, all of these are external to us, and God's external too. But when we give our life to Jesus Christ, God moves in. This is going to crown. He moves in. This great God of fear and awe and wonder, he moves into our own hearts and our own spirit and he fills us with all manner of might and his holy presence and his holy spirit so that we can live out. You see, he doesn't require something of us to fit in. He gives us something and he makes us his son or his daughter and he answers the questions of our heart up front. You are loved. I died for you. You are accepted because I made you acceptable in the beloved. You are significant because you're made in my image. You call according to my purpose. You're equipped for spiritual gifts and you sent out to make a difference. All the questions of our heart get answered up front before we've done a single thing. Jesus Christ, on the day of his baptism, before he had done anything, behold, this is my son whom I love and who brings me great joy. Now go live in that space. And you know what happens then is that we live out. You see, when it comes to our family, we love. And not just any kind of love, it's a covenant love because we've made a commitment to each other. The Bible says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church who loved her and gave up his life for her. So when she's having an off day or week or month or year, because it happens. You don't get frustrated because they're not answering your needs. You go to the Father and say, God, fill me with your love so I've got something to give my spouse. When it comes to friends, there's a different kind of love. I call it sacrificial love. Because this is a love that's bound us together and there's times when it's wonderful, but there's times when it costs me something. There's times when I say to my wife, hey, babes, tonight I can't hang out because so-and-so is going through something. I need to go be with them. I need to be with them. I need to pray with them. I need to cry with them. I need to walk them through something. And this is what I believe. The Bible says that God places the lonely in families, that he gives people friends. And so the friends that I have in my life have been strategically placed there by God. And so my commitment to them is actually an act of worship to God because he gave them to me. You've got your colleagues. And the Bible says, hey, slaves, servants, serve your masters out of reverence for Christ. Serve them. 
Work hard for them, not just when they're watching, even when they're not, because the one you're working for is actually Jesus, and he will reward you. And so when it comes to colleagues, we're there to serve them. And I've got some people in my life, I lead a team, and I lead some people, and those people, I pray for them, and I give them an hour of my week each week, and I try and be with them, and I try to serve them in their journey. And then when it comes to community, the people around, God calls us to bless them. He said, you've been blessed so that you can be a blessing. You've got gifts and abilities, minister them to one another out of love for Jesus. And when it comes to crowd, God gives us influence. You see, God says, the Bible says that, that even no man can have something unless God has given it to them. That the, the platform you've got, the profile you've got, has been given to you by God so you can minister to him. And so this ministering to the crowd becomes about how do I influence them for Jesus? Rather, how can they affirm me in the deep needs of my life? Every believer will work this out for themselves. Pastors are no different. It can be very affirming when you're the person that gets the call when someone's going through a crisis. But if your identity is based on that, you'll keep saying yes to your congregation and no to your spouse. Or yes to your congregation and no to yourself and your own personal connection to Jesus. And then eventually in my life, I spent all my time praying for the church. And when it came to me and God, I found I didn't have much to say. And God has to shift that thing. And here's the irony, is that when you live this way, when you care so much more about what God says about you, you don't actually care less about these people. You just care the way God would have you. But you're not looking to them to answer the deep questions of your heart. But when it comes, when your family looks at you and says, thank you, for the kind of husband you are, for the kind of wife you are, the kind of father or mother you are, you go, you know what? That's a testimony of the grace of Jesus in my life. Thank you, Jesus. When people in your community value you, it's because God has gifted you and you've got something to give because of his grace and his goodness in your life. Proverbs 22 verse 4 says, True humility and fear of the Lord... Your ray of God lead to riches, honor, and long life. How counterintuitive. And that is the sacred art of not caring. Because we care so deeply about what God says about us and what he's called us to be to other people. Let's pray. Make sure I ask everyone just to keep their head bowed and their eyes closed. I woke up this morning at quarter to four. You know when you have those, those I've been through some interactions with people recently and, and I found myself arguing, fighting people in my head. Ever done that? They're not even there, but you're still fighting them in your head. And at about half past five, after an hour and 45 minutes of fighting and praying and fighting and praying, God spoke to me and he said, my son, the reason you, you're stuck here is because you fear man. 
You fear what they're going to say about you. They fear what they're going to not say about you. They're going to fear the, the consequence in your life. And it's such a beautiful thing when God invites us into the place of repentance because it sets us free. You see, other people point out faults in us to denigrate us, but God points out faults in us to free us and invites us into a deeper relationship and experience of Him. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you realize, man, I've been looking to my family, my friends, my colleague, my community or a crowd to validate who I am as a person. And God, I want to repent of that fear of man. I want to put my trust and hope in God. If that's you this morning, I'm just going to ask you to slip your hand up. I'm going to pray for you quick. Father God, I pray for those people. I pray, God, that you grant us the gift, myself included, the gift of repentance. That we can think about this differently so we can be free. I pray, God, you set us free from the fear of man because we're so in love with Jesus that you consume us like a consuming fire. And now I want to pray for another group of people. Maybe you're here and you're going, I want to know this awesome God. And maybe you're here and you're looking in, but you've never given your life to Jesus. And if this morning you say, Jesus, I want to turn my life over to you and I want to know your love for me. If that's you, can you just slip up your hand? I want to pray for you quick. Thank you so much, sir. Anyone else? You're going, I want to know this Jesus. Thank you so much at the back there. I want to know Jesus. I want to be consumed by him. I'm so tired of living for the applause of other people. I want to live for you, Jesus. If that's you, I want to give you one more chance to slip up your hand. I just want to pray for those people that raise their hand. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us. You love those people. You died on the cross for their sins. And you rose from the dead so they can live with freedom and power. We place our faith in you, Jesus. Please forgive us our sins. And we turn to you. And God, I pray for everyone in this community that we would be a community that's so enraptured with the love of Jesus that we've got something to give to the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen.